After a one-week pause, we are back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in our time of study today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, looking at verses 1, 2, and 3, and therefore we are uh, talking about the topic, the subject of eschatology. No doubt the study of eschatology, which is the study of the end times, is a passion for many people. Understandably, people want to know what the future looks like. The problem, though, is that sometimes some Christians go beyond what God has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture on this topic, and therefore they end up holding some erroneous views just based upon their opinion of what is said on the newscast today. Well, eschatology is an important topic, and I don't want to uh, diminish that at all, but we must always be seeking uh, to Find out what Scripture says and not go beyond that. I certainly am not presenting us as a church or me as a preacher at at being perfect at that goal of not going beyond Scripture, but it always is our desire, always is our goal. And certainly there are godly people who disagree on some of the particulars when it comes to eschatology. But one of the places in Scripture that anyone must go One of those places, if you want to know what is written on this topic, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, we began our study of this chapter a couple of weeks ago, so I'll just quickly review what we found at that time. We noted that these three verses can be broken down into two major emphases related to something called the day of the Lord. The first emphasis that we looked at, number one, was this, the uncertain timing of the day, meaning the day of the Lord. Look at verse 1 again of 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 1, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. That phrase, the times and the epics, you'll remember I said refers to seasons of time, periods of time in God's economy as it relates to His will for human history, periods of time of human history. And when it comes to the timing of God's future plans for human history, there is a limit to what has been revealed. But we can know something. Just like the Thessalonians did know something, and here it is in verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And I explained last time that the expression, the day of the Lord, as it's used here, refers to a future period of time, a season of time that belongs to the Lord. That's the main idea, really. It is His day, His season when he will display his character. He'll do it in judging the wicked, but he will also display his character as far as his justice goes in the future when he establishes his kingdom and his righteous rule. In this season, this day that belongs to the Lord, it's his day, you could summarize it this way. It's a time in the future when he will intervene to accomplish all that history has been aiming toward. So I do believe it is a broad concept in Scripture that includes many aspects then of His intervention. And that's the main thought, divine intervention into human history. But since this day includes God's wrath, that's an aspect of it, then definitely 
Something called the tribulation is a major component of the day of the Lord. This future seven-year period called the tribulation is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel of a future week of years, is the way Daniel expressed it, a week is seven days. So when he said a week of years, that idea means seven years, a period of seven years. It's sometimes therefore called Daniel's 70th week of its prophecy. As well, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. A seven-year time on earth of increasing turmoil, increasing human agony as God's intervention increases. And this period of time will be climaxed then by the Lord, the Messiah's second coming to earth at the end of those seven years. Now, this future seven-year tribulation is explained in more detail in several chapters in Revelation, particularly Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 18. Chapters 4 and 5 kind of set up those chapters, but you get most of the details of all the events of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, and every event within that period is connected. In other words, all the events must run their course before Jesus personally appears on the earth again. Now, this future day of the Lord was prophesied in the Old Testament in Daniel, but other places as well. And just like many other Old Testament prophecies, this one had what I called and what I told you about last time, a near fulfillment or historical fulfillment, as well as a far or eschatological fulfillment. In other words, there was something about a particular prophecy that was fulfilled at that time in history when God expressed His wrath, for example, and brought forth some form of temporal judgment, whether it was judging Israel, judging Israel's enemies. But any of those various historical days of the Lord did not include all that the day of the Lord meant. So what happened in some historical event, you could say, was a foreshadowing of the future judgment to come, that aspect of the eschatological day of the Lord. And I mentioned one example that some people, I think, misinterpret, and that is what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Jerusalem was conquered, destroyed, essentially. So some have tried to make that event to be the fulfillment of what was prophesied about the day of the Lord and what is being addressed here in 1 Thessalonians and in Revelation concerning judgment. But there is no way, there is no way to exegetically and historically make that event as horrible as it was, as terrible as it was, to fit all that is said about God's intervention the day of the Lord. That event in 70 AD then was a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of future judgment, but it was not the judgment spoken about in Revelation. It was certainly not the second coming of the Lord, as some say. So with all that in mind, we also found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, that the apostle used an analogy to depict the uncertainty of the timing, to depict the suddenness of it, to depict the unexpectedness of the future day of the Lord. Verse 2, it will come just like a thief in the night. The thief comes suddenly. It's not something that's scheduled on your calendar. It's 
It's not something predetermined from our vantage point. In the same way, then, the day of the Lord will commence suddenly when people are not expecting it, at least the people of the world. The timing of the day is therefore uncertain. And then I told you the second emphasis, and all that leads to the second emphasis, number two, the inevitable devastation of the day. Uh, Unbelievers are targeted in this day of wrath unleashed upon them, and for them the consequences will be devastating even though, verse 3 tells us, they think that they're going to be okay, that they're secure. Verse 3, while they are saying, peace and safety. And grammatically, it means they keep telling themselves over and over, peace and safety, peace and safety, we're okay, we're safe and secure. But what did they mean by that? Safe and secure from what? They will keep trying to convince themselves that God cannot reach them. God cannot hold them accountable. God cannot judge them. And they're deluded in that. And when their delusion reaches its peak, this is what will happen, verse 3, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. And destruction doesn't mean annihilation. They just no longer exist. It means the loss of everything that life is supposed to be, the loss of well-being, the loss of purpose for living, and all the accompanying misery that's going to go with that loss. The point is, what a terrible time the tribulation will be for those who are not in Christ. Well, since our passage is connected to that aspect of the day of the Lord, it's connected to the subject of the future tribulation, I thought I would do something a little different for a Sunday morning. I'm going to go through a brief overview of chapters 4 through 18 of the book of Revelation this morning. O ye of little faith. Fifteen chapters in about 20 or 30 minutes. Can it be done? A seemingly impossible task, I suppose. I got to give you full disclosure here. This was not really my idea. I got the idea from our friend, Tom Pennington, who pastors in the Dallas, Texas area. I was there recently, as you know, and found out that that church is studying the book of Revelation on Sundays just like we did on Wednesday nights here. And in their study, Tom recently arrived at Revelation chapter 19, the the chapter that is dealing with the glorious second coming of the Lord to earth. But he decided before launching into that chapter, he would do a review of chapters 4 through 18. So I said, if he can do it, I can do it. More literally, I thought this, that that will be a great study. That will be a great idea for our church as well. So I am borrowing heavily from Tom's version of that review he did in his church. I'm borrowing from our study of Revelation on Wednesday nights. I'm borrowing from Danny and Kevin. But I'm going to walk through Revelation 4 through 18 with you. It is these chapters that lay out more details about the aspect of the day of the Lord mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5, this future seven-year period. Now, as I've noted, there are commentators who, I believe, play exegetical games with Revelation to make it fit a system that depends on abandoning a, a normal hermeneutic and literal grammatical hermeneutic 
to try an allegorical approach to things that are said, but the fact remains we should do a normal reading of Revelation, applying normal human hermeneutics, and when we do that, we will end up taking a futurist view of the book, a futurist understanding. Now, we know that Revelation was written by the Apostle John in the year 96 A.D., around there, which makes it the last New Testament book written. So, most of the book, from chapter 4 onward especially, is dealing with what will take place in the future, certainly after 96 A.D. Something else we know about Revelation, and that is the Holy Spirit who inspired John to write this book, inspired him to write it using a lot of symbolic language. But even though there's symbolism, that symbolism is still prophesying about real events that are going to happen, about real people at the end of human history, and that is what a, a normal hermeneutic will yield. Now, look, hold your place in 1 Thessalonians 5, if you will, but turn to Revelation chapter 1, and let's just start with verse 1, remind us the very, of the very introductory verse of the book, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. This is the revelation, and revelation means unveiling. This book is the unveiling of Jesus the Messiah, the unveiling of his glorious kingdom, the unveiling of his eternal destruction of his enemies and his eternal blessing of his people. Jump down to verse 19 of Revelation 1. That's an important verse. It's the verse that gives us the inspired outline of the entire book. Verse 19 of Revelation 1, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Following that inspired outline, we find the book divided into three sections like this. I have provided slides for you this morning just to help with a lot of information here. Section 1, the thing seen, what was seen by John in a vision in chapter 1, the glorious vision of the risen and glorified Christ. The second section, the things which are. In other words, the things which were reality at the time John wrote. Chapters 2 and 3, those are letters from Jesus to seven churches that actually, actually existed in the first century in Asia Minor, Minor, seven churches that represent all churches throughout church history. Section 3, the final section, things that will take place in the future, and that's the rest of the book. Chapters 4 all the way through 22, those chapters present to us the, the stages of Jesus' final triumph over all his enemies. Now, you can see there on that slide that it's broken down into several components, but we're only pulling out the third one, or one of them, out of section three, really. Maybe, I guess, the first two I'm addressing in more particular. Section three, the things that will take place. So here we go, looking at 15 chapters. Just to give you hope, I did it in the first service. Okay. Chapters 4 and 5, great chapters, glorious chapters. What a scene this is. It's a scene that takes place in heaven just before the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. 
And just as a side note, I have mentioned to you in previous sermons our position as a church historically and my own personal position on the rapture that I take a pre-tribulational view. I believe that what is said about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 takes place before this seven-year period. So basically, it means that the rapture is in coordination, you could say, with what is in this scene in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. Now, in these chapters, definitely, we find the Lamb, we'll mention that in a moment, the glorified Jesus. In these chapters, we also find a very important document that's a book, but in their day, it was more like a scroll, a scroll that had seven seals around it, holding it in place, closed. Again, a magnificent scene. The majesty of God's rule as He sits on the throne, being worshipped and the glories of heaven that surrounded him. And the overall theme of the scene is that God is worthy to sit on the throne. He's worthy to occupy the universe's throne. He's worthy to judge all the treason and rebellion against him. But something else is important. He delegates that right and that authority to the Son who is the Lamb. Again, this takes place in heaven, this scene. But it is this scene that introduces the judgments that are going to be unleashed on the earth during the time of tribulation. It's chapter 5 when we see the Lamb, the one who was slain, the one who was raised from the dead, the one worthy to inherit all things that belong to God. Psalm 2 verse 8 even prophesies that, you know. I, the Father, will surely give the nation as your inheritance to the Son and the very ends of the earth as your possession. It's why Jesus is referred to this way in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. He's the heir of all things. Worthy the Lamb is to inherit all things. We see Him in chapter 5 and this book that was like a scroll. And this scroll symbolizes the Lamb's rightful inheritance. As more than one commentator has put it, you could think of the scroll this way. It's the title deed to the earth. Jesus, the Lamb, the one who is worthy to take this scroll from the Father, but it's sealed with seven seals. And yet we're going to see when Jesus opens the scroll, seal by seal, as the seals are broken, He will begin to judge the universe. And in this judgment... Jesus will essentially be taking back from Satan then what is rightfully his and destroying all rebellion against God and restoring the universe from the curse. All of that happening during the seven-year tribulation. Chapter 6, Jesus initiates then the devastating judgments of the tribulation by breaking the seals. He breaks the first six seals. The first four of these seals are presented as horses, different colored horses with riders, R-I-D-E-R-S, riders on them. You've heard this term before, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first four seals. Let's look at them. The first seal found in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, this releases the first horse and rider, and this horse is white, It symbolizes, it represents false peace that Antichrist will bring upon the earth. Daniel 9 prophesies that. 
that when Antichrist first comes, he will carry out a worldwide expansion of his empire. But he's not going to do it with bloody battles at first. He'll do it with treaties, agreements. It's an empire that he will promote that promises peace across the earth. I do believe the pre-trib view of the rapture fits well with that, something dramatic that happens that would allow for some person to be able to come to the scene promoting peace like that. But the deal is, it's a false peace. It's a charade. It's going to be shattered by what's symbolizing the second horseman, the second seal, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6, a red horse symbolizing war. You can say, well, yeah, that's what we're going... We've always had that in every generation in human history. We have wars now. Not like this one. This will be a time of unparalleled world war at a totally new dimension. Then Jesus breaks the third seal, verses 5 and 6. It's a black horse, symbolizes famine and the scarcity of food. That goes along with wars, wars that damage production, wars that cause the breakdown of supply lines, and you think, well, didn't we have that during COVID? Listen, we did, but that was just a small thing. The pandemic was just a small taste of this idea of the decrease in supplies and disruption of supply chain and so on. And along with this, in verse 6, you find a reference to something else that's going to happen, and that is an inflation that is hyperinflation. It tells us there in the scriptures that it will take at this time a whole day's pay to buy just a little food for the day. He breaks the fourth seal, verses 7 and 8. Now the, the horse is ashen in color and it represents death. And it tells us death of one-fourth of humanity by pestilence, by sword. And due to all the war and due to all the famine, there will be so many bodies that burial will not even be possible, which leads to an increase in disease due to all the rotting corpses. And animals are even going to, to be looking for food, emerging, looking for food, even eating, feeding on humans. Fourth of humanity I don't know what the population will be at the time this happens. If it happened today, you know what that would be? Two billion corpses. Fifth seal. This is chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It's a wonderful scene of divine justice because there will be some of God's elect still on the earth that hadn't come to Christ until all this starts to happen. During the tribulation, there will be elect individuals coming to salvation but they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be killed. And in heaven, this section tells us that God will hear their prayers for justice. You look at this fifth seal, and that's a nice respite from what's said in the other seals, but I do need to tell you this is an important juncture in the chronology, which there is a chronological approach here to Revelation. This fifth seal marks the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Connected to this important juncture is this, which is explained later in, tribulation, in Revelation. At this midpoint, Antichrist, the world ruler that I mentioned, is going to break his treaties of peace, especially with Israel, and is going to erect an image of himself in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's going to demand worldwide worship of his image, and the world's going to give it to him. 
It's called in Scripture, you've heard of it, the abomination of desolation. And Antichrist is going to unleash unprecedented persecution on Israel, the Old Testament people of God, and on New Testament believers, those coming to Christ during this period. And we're only halfway through. That brings us to the sixth and seventh seals. And these seals include other judgments called the trumpet and bowl judgments, severe judgments that will be thrust upon the earth in the second half of the tribulation. The sixth seal in chapter 6, 12 through 17, brings forth supernatural disasters across the earth. Now, those first five seals, I do believe, are acts of divine wrath because it's the beginning of all that God is doing to intervene in the day of the Lord. They won't involve direct divine intervention in the world like these do. Such is what is coming now in the final two seals. In other words, this sixth seal is going to clearly now be something divine. It's catastrophic divine judgment. It tells us in verse 12 there's going to be a great earthquake bigger than any in history. And the sun and the moon are going to be affected because of all the volcanic ash and the the soot from the volcanic eruptions. It's going to make it appear as blood. Verse 13 says stars are going to start to fall, referring to meteors. Verse 14, the sky is going to be torn apart, just damage, partial destruction of the earth's atmosphere. Every island is going to be affected and going to move. Every mountain is going to be moved because of the earth's tectonic plates dramatically shifting. As a result of this seal, people are going to be forced to admit all this stuff that's happening, it is from God. Look at verses 15 through 17 of Revelation 6. I'll read it. 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, follow on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're starting to get it. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who's able to stand? No one. Then chapter 7, we have an interesting break in the chronology. It's a pause. It's an interlude. It's the first of three of these that happen in the book of Revelation. John pauses the telling of all these events in chronological order, and he says something more generation about the saints, the tribulation saints. And here is what's presented, that by His grace, God is going to save not only lots of people, He's going to save and commission 144,000 Jewish missionaries to preach the gospel during the rest of the tribulation, verses 1 to 8. And beginning in verse 9, due to their ministry, we find that God is going to save an innumerable multitude from across the world, countless people being saved from His wrath. But that pause was just a pause. It ends in chapters 8 and 9 with the seventh seal, the final seal. The breaking of this seal, though, initiates a series of other judgments Seven distinct judgments that are each one that are announced by the blowing of a trumpet. They're called the trumpet judgments. 
This is where the understanding of the chronology gets tedious, but you have to think of it this way. These seven trumpet judgments are all contained within the seventh seal, like a Russian Matryoshka doll. You familiar with those? Stack dolls, you know? You open it up, and there's another one, smaller. You open it up, and there's another one. Imagine seven, seven dolls. You open up that last, you get to the last doll, and lo and behold, it opens. And there's seven more dolls within it. That's what's happening here. Within the seventh seal, the seven trumpet judgments. And keep in mind, each of these are released chronologically, one after another. Here's the first trumpet. Chapter 8, verse 7, hail and fire and blood. These very well may be the result of that big earthquake that I mentioned, the volcanic eruption with water and steam spewing out into the sky. About a month or so ago, Pam and I were actually driving at the base of Mount Vesuvius in Pompeii. Couldn't help but think about all of this as I drove by. For one reason, it actually is a, an active volcano that they believe is going to erupt again if you're interested in buying property there. This will be far beyond that. That was just a foreshadowing. Water and steam spewing out in the sky. It's going to fall then as hail mixed with lava. That's going to contaminate the water supply, and it even looks like blood when it happens. This ash and hail and all the lightning is going to start igniting fires, verse 7. And that's going to consume one-third of the earth's land and vegetation. First trumpet. Second trumpet. Verse 8. A large meteorite, sort of an asteroid, is going to ignite while it's in the air. And it hits somewhere in what we call the seven oceans. And the impact of this thing hitting is going to cause a massive tidal wave that destroys one-third of the world's ships. It doesn't matter whether they're docked or out at sea, one-third of the world's ships. And the verse goes on to say that the sea became blood. We don't know for sure. God could do that supernaturally. He has the power. Or some have suggested it could be the result of what's known as the red tide. Millions of tiny organisms, organisms destroyed by the asteroid. Third trumpet, verses 10 to 11 of chapter 8, a great star, some sort of comet or meteor possibly. This one shatters to pieces, falls to the earth, and ends up poisoning one-third of the fresh water. Fourth trumpet, verse 12, a third of the sun is darkened, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, all darkened. God supernaturally diminishing their intensity, turning the, uh, the fader down on them. And when that happens, temperatures are going to plunge. Normal weather patterns are going to change. That's going to lead to unusually violent storms, unprecedented tides, crops destroyed, an increased number of animals and human lives lost. Fifth trumpet, chapter 9, verse 1. Another star, but it's not a celestial body this time like a meteor or asteroid. Here it represents a person. Look at Revelation 9, verse 2. Here's what this individual does. He... Open the bottomless pit. That's like the section of hell 
For the worst of demons being held there, he opens the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Here's what this means. Demons are going to be released from this section of hell, and these demons are going to attack the earth like locusts. And verse 7 through 10 tells us they are relentless in their attack. They're vicious. They're going to sting like a scorpion. And for five months, they will terrorize humanity. In fact, in verse 6, it says that people are going to want to die and death will flee them. Sixth trumpet, chapter 9, verses 12 through 21, four fallen demons, four bound fallen demons. These are demons of death are going to be released and they're going to lead a demonic force of 200 million demons and that horde is going to kill one-third of the remaining population. And yet, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9 say that the sinner still won't repent. And then there's another interlude. This is the second pause in the chronology. Chapters 10 all the way through 11, verse 14. And here, John tells, gives us some more information. He he tells about a mighty angel holding in his hand that little scroll now. Now all the seals are broken. And he holds it, he holds it in heaven open, and everyone there with him can see now the contents of the scroll. They can see the full panorama of God's intervention and judgment that will already have happened, and they'll be able to see what's still to come because it's not over yet. And the angel hands it to John and tells him to eat it, which means digest its contents, John. And he does, and he finds all the truth about Jesus being victorious over evil, and Jesus establishing his kingdom, and it's sweet to his taste, but then he realizes it also includes the fury that's still to come, the doom awaiting unbelievers, and it says it's bitter to him. And in chapter 11, 1 through 14, we find that during the last three and a half years, God's going to do something else. He sends these two amazing witnesses to the planet from heaven. Some say it's Moses and Elijah. Could be. We don't know. He sends them to heaven, from heaven to earth. They preach the gospel to Jews, and they're going to be invincible in their preaching, untouchable for a time. And they're so effective preaching to the Jews that we find what Romans 11 prophesies about that an unprecedented number of Jews are going to be saved, so much so that Israel, as it exists on the earth at that time now, Israel will be saved. But in chapter 11, verse 7, we find God's going to allow these two witnesses to finally be killed. And they're going to just leave their dead bodies unburied in Jerusalem. And as a result of these two witnesses finally being killed, There's going to be a worldwide party with people celebrating, giving gifts to one another. Yay, they're gone. But in verse 11, after three and a half days of that, they're going to be raised raised back to life. And in verse 12, taken back to heaven. And then in verse 15 of chapter 11, the chronology picks up again. Seventh trumpet. So we've already opened seven dolls. That last doll, you opened it. It had seven more dolls in it. Guess what? Take the seventh one of that one and open it. And there's seven more dolls inside that one. The final trumpet is announcing 
seven bowl judgments. They'll be described later in chapter 16. Yet, before these judgments are described, this is the worst of the worst, the Holy Spirit inserts yet another interlude. John again hits the pause button on the chronology to tell us several important things. Chapter 12, for example, we're reminded that Satan, called the dragon, has been at war with God forever and against his Messiah, against God's people. Israel, who's referred to as a woman in this chapter. But we're told that even though that's always been true, Satan's attacks are going to intensify as the end is winding down. Chapter 13, Satan's going to empower two generals, two men during the seven-year period, two beasts. One I've already mentioned, it's Antichrist. He's called the beast from the sea in chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. There's a little more information given about this figure that appeared earlier in the chronology. A profoundly evil ruler who's going to establish himself as a substitute Messiah, which means a false Messiah, one who will rule and one who demands the worship of the entire world, as I mentioned to you. But Satan's going to raise up a second general, a human called the false prophet. And the false prophet's going to promote worldwide worship of Antichrist. He's called the beast from the earth in chapter 13. Chapter 14, John inserts a preview of final victory. This is great because it's a vision of, of, yes, doom of those who worship the beast and some reapers, but an angel flying in the sky and preaching the gospel. And it's a vision of the lamb and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. Why did he insert that? He just wanted to suddenly remind us that Jesus wins. Chapter 15 in this interlude is a scene in heaven. And it's a sobering scene because now it's preparation for the final seven bold judgments contained in the last trumpet. The chronology resumes chapter 16, the seven bowls. As I noted, the seventh trumpet has announced each, is announcing these seven bowls. And these bowl judgments are intense. Keep in mind that they're rapid fire. These are the seven judgments that are going to come rapid fire intensely that will all immediately proceed, precede, and usher in the second coming of Christ to the earth. When you hear the word bowl, though, it's not like a large, deep bowl. It's more like a saucer. We explained that on Wednesday nights. A saucer that if you are going to spill the contents, it, it happens quickly. That's the idea. The saucer, the contents can be dumped suddenly and even violently all at once. And such will be these judgments now that come at the end of history. They will come in relentless waves. First one, first bowl, verse 2, brings an open oozing, malignant sore on all those who worship Antichrist. And evidently, the wording hints at this, that the sore may very well develop at the very place on their body that they had chosen to receive the mark of the beast earlier in Revelation as his follower. Second bowl, rapid fire, verse 3, like the second trumpet that we saw, but far Worse, far more devastating, far more widespread, all the earth oceans turn into, or at least come to resemble, all the oceans on the earth resemble coagulated blood. And verse 3 says, every living thing in the seas therefore die. 
So the oceans and the shores around the oceans and seas are just going to be covered with corpses and the, the foul smell of death is going to be overwhelming. Third bowl, four to seven, verses four to seven, every source of fresh water on the planet is going to turn to blood. No clean water to drink, no clean water to clean these oozing, painful, malignant sores. Fourth bowl, rapid fire, the sun is going to scorch the planet, maybe due to all the atmospheric changes that have happened, but regardless, the dramatically increased heat is going to produce drought, but painful burns and blisters on people. The polar ice caps are going to melt. It's been estimated that that's going to raise the sea levels a 100 to 200 feet, destroying most coastal cities. How do people respond now? Look at Revelation 16, verse 9. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. You know, it does take a supernatural act of God to cause somebody to repent. Fifth bowl, rapid fire, verses 10 to 11, a supernatural darkness. There's something about this one I think that staggers me the most. A supernatural darkness is going to cover the planet. All these people, these suffering people are not going to be able to see. There's going to be a sense of total isolation. Each individual unable to see anything. In total isolation, dealing with the pain of their sores. The stench of all the dead marine life, no drinking water, no water to soothe their sores, raging, blistering heat, all experienced in total darkness. Each person locked up in his or her own misery. Scripture says it's going to drive, drive them to start gnawing their tongues in pain. Sixth bowl, verses 12 to 16, Euphrates River will dry up. That's all in preparation for the battle of Armageddon that's coming. For Antichrist's armies will be able to invade Israel easily. Finally, the seventh bowl, all rapid fire, verses 17 to 21, the final expression of divine wrath that will immediately precede the second coming. It begins with a worldwide earthquake, the largest one ever, that will destroy the globe, cities everywhere collapsing into rubble, including the capital city of Antichrist called Babylon. Verses 20 and 21, all these tectonic plates shifting and buckling, altering the earth's topography, Accompanied by violent, unrelenting thunderstorms, it says hailstones weighing a hundred pounds. And with that bowl, the wrath of God is finished. And all these effects will be going on as Christ returns to earth, chapter 19, and establishes millennial kingdom, chapter 20. Just so you'll know, in chapter 17 through 18, though, there's just some more information he wanted us to know about the destruction of Babylon because it's, Babylon experiences dis- destruction in three different ways. So there's a little bit of a step away from the chronology again, but chapter 16, verse 19 mentions Babylon the Great. The capital city for Antichrist's empire is going to be Babylon. 
Some have speculated that it's a rebuilding of a city on the original site of the old ancient city, Babylon, on the Euphrates River. We don't know. It could be some other great city on the earth as his capital called Babylon. It's going to be destroyed in the seventh bowl judgment. There's a religious Babylon that's going to be destroyed in all of this. The false religious system that Antichrist is going to use is described as a harlot, chapter 17, a prostitute, this false religious system. Now, during the first three and a half years, I mentioned to you, Antichrist and his cronies promoting, along with the false prophet, worldwide worship of Antichrist. Antichrist, in the first half, is going to utilize, partner together with all the world's false religions for that purpose. He's going to get these all to partner with him, like Islam and Buddhism and Roman Catholicism and any other man-made false religion. They're going to come together in one great ecumenical force, but at the midpoint, which I mentioned to you, Antichrist, we find out in Revelation that Antichrist is going to appear to die. He's going to then appear to be raised from the dead, and that changes everything. That's when he sets up the image of himself to be worshipped, the abomination of desolation. He will demand that he alone be worshipped. 2 Thessalonians 2 comments on that. And here's what's interesting. When that point comes, he was utilizing the world false religions, but at this point, halfway through, when he demands worship of himself, he and his cronies are going to change and surprisingly start hating all the other false religious systems. And they're going to destroy every other religion at the midpoint. Chapter 17, verse 16 says, We'll make her desolate. He's going to plunder all the wealth that these false religions had. He's going to expose the hypocrisy and the corruption in all the false religions. Yay! No. It's not because he loves the truth. It's all for his own purposes. And the destruction of all this religious system is going to be hostile and violent with only Antichrist left. But chapter 18 says there's another aspect of the destruction of Babylon. It's political commercial Babylon. There's the city, there's the religious Babylon, there's the political commercial Babylon. His Antichrist capital city is the center of all the world's commerce and industry. That's going to be destroyed. So there, I did it. Fifteen chapters. So with that introduction completed, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 for the sermon for today. Back to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, Paul presents another figure here that helps characterize all that inevitable devastation of that future destruction. Look at verse 3, like labor pains upon a woman with child. The point is, all of this starts small but it grows in intensity right up to the second coming. Reminiscent of the Lord's teaching, Matthew 24, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's a common figure in the Old Testament, Isaiah 13, 8 and 9, they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will rise like a woman in labor. Again, the coming of the day of the Lord is inevitable just like the birth is at the end of labor. So the figure of the thief, that suggests the uncertain timing of all this 
devastation. And the second figure of a pregnant woman in labor suggests its, suggests its inevitableness. And finally, at the end of verse 3, the inescapable result of all this coming judgment is just bluntly and literally stated, they will not escape. That pronoun they refers to the ones who before were assuring themselves peace and safety, peace and safety. We can go our own way. We don't need God. For all the unbelievers during the tribulation, once they realize what's going on, every effort to get out and flee will be futile. In fact, this inability to escape is stressed in a, in a double negative in the Greek here. You could translate it something like this. There will be no escape, none. They will not escape. No, not at all. Unbelievers living on the earth during the tribulation. Just so you'll know, no reference in this passage is made to the judgment of dead unbelievers, all those who have died throughout history and are dying now. That judgment is also going to come. We find this in the second Thessalonians. God's going to cast them into the eternal torment of hell. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. They'll be judged as well. Just want to leave you with some takeaways from all of this. There are six of them. Something interesting happened two weeks ago when I preached the first part of this passage. I did the first takeaway in the first service, but I didn't do it in the second service. So here it is for everybody again in an abbreviated form. Number one takeaway is be content with what Scripture says, with what God has revealed. Let's try to understand what God has revealed this means not spending time in useless curiosity trying to figure out more. Though there are plenty of websites that would be glad to help you with that curiosity. Don't. Number two, we do need to be prepared for the end times. The question is, though, what do you mean by prepared? What I don't mean is date setting, clock watching, Sign-seeking in the news, hiding, hoarding. No, I mean spiritually prepared. We're believers. We have work to do. All believers, we are to live in constant anticipation of the end times. We're to live in a state of constant readiness, which means... Ready in this sense, daily seeking to live a holy life that pleases the Lord. That's the purpose for biblical prophetic instruction. It's not to promote curiosity. It's to influence how we live now, regardless of the view you take. Colossians 3, 5 to 6. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. You look at that and that's what God's going to punish. Well, then let's constantly seek to battle the flesh every day on these things. To live a holy life. Third, God's wrath is definitely coming. 
listen, I understand how this works when you hear a study like this, whether it was the long approach on Wednesday nights or the Reader's Digest version this morning. You hear it all and you go, I don't know. That, that's a lot of unusual stuff. Listen, don't be deceived. It is all certain. The Lord is a patient, merciful God, but He's also just, and that means He must punish sin. His wrath must come. Colossians said it, Ephesians 5, 6 say the same thing. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Number four, as believers, as Christians who follow Christ, we should, every time we study a passage like this, we should be so grateful for our rescue. We sang that earlier, right? I asked Kyle to sing that song today. Jesus, thank you. Once an enemy, headed for this. And now God rescued me and I'm seated at his table. Thank you, Jesus. And something else about that gratitude, if you know Christ this morning, just remember this, all the problems and trials and disappointments of this life are only for this life. So put that into proper perspective. Everything related to this world is temporary, but eternity is forever. So yes, we have to face our trials, we have to make decisions, we have to seek to deal with the challenges of life, but do it all under the overarching thought of the hope that we have because we've been rescued, and that regardless of what happens in this trial, I'm not going to face God's wrath. Thank the Lord. Number five, we should be prompted, motivated to evangelize from passages like this. This is a warning passage. And our lost friends and our lost family members and our lost co-workers and our lost neighbors, I mean, they need to hear about the reality of God's wrath. They need to be warned. I mean, we're, we're no different than someone standing on a road and just waving our arms because we know the bridge is out back here, warning others of the reality of the coming destruction. When it comes to the gospel, we can't make anybody turn around, but we can warn them. They need to be warned, and they can be told the answer, the gospel, and we can pray for them. We should tell people this, yes. Yeah, but I like that little track that says, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Listen, if they remain in their unbelief, God has a terrible plan for their life. And here's what it is. But here's the answer in Christ. And number six, all people will face Jesus someday. It doesn't matter where, where you die before he returns or we there when he returns, each of us. And that moment can go one of two ways, right? It can be a moment of terror or it can be a moment of worship and great gratitude for his grace. Like I said, God is a just God. He must punish sin. But he's a merciful God. He loves, he delights to save sinners. Let me just read one section of Revelation 5 for you. That great scene in heaven that kicked off all these judgments. 
Revelation 5, 7 to 9, when the Lamb came and, and took the scroll out of the Father's hand who sat on the throne, it says this in verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding up a harp and golden bowls full of incense, its worship, which are the prayers of the saints, I mean, prayers of the saints. And they sang, this is the point, they sang a new song, and here it is, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. They were praising Him for that, that God is a saving God. So if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, then this warning is for you. Hear the warning and heed the invitation to come to Christ before it's too late. Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Acts 17, 30. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. He's declaring that now. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Come. All those invitations and commands really mean that you should repent and come to faith in Christ as soon as God the Holy Spirit brings conviction to your heart of your sins. Because as Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My prayer is that each of us here will not experience the wrath of the Lamb. And that's only possible if we have come to trust in the Lamb to put our trust in the life and death and resurrection of the Lamb for the forgiveness of our sins now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sobering warning, important passages in Scripture. Help us get the main point that you are a just God and you've prophesied your wrath will come and it will come, but there is salvation in Christ for all who come humbly, confessing their sin and their need for a Savior, with a desire to follow Christ now as the Lord of their life, there is forgiveness in Him. If there's anyone here who's still holding on to the pride of their heart and wanting to go their own way, may you use this warning today to break them to the place of surrender. And Father, help each of us who proclaim Christ and profess Christ to certainly be grateful every day. Help us not to forget any of this and to think it's, it's no big deal. Lord, help us to every day sing those words. Once we were your enemies, but now you've accepted us. We are in your family. We're seated at your table. May we begin every day with that words of thank you to Jesus. Father, help us to also be courageous and bold to not to withhold words of warning to those who are outside Christ because it's that serious. In our Savior's name, amen.